because of the noise falling through the avalanche, you, you can't hear what's going on. Um, my helmet was ripped off and my gloves were ripped off. And by the time I settled at the bottom, it was literally just my face sticking out and my hands were right at snow level, right at, right above the snow. But the whole rest of my body was buried. How far back is far enough from the edge of a cornice? 10 feet, 20 feet, 30? You could say it depends on the size of the cornice. Those gnarly masses of snow and ice that curl over the leeward side of ridges and mountaintops like long, wicked fingernails during the winter. But the problem with cornices is that you never really know how big they are, especially from above. On March 5th, 2023, Jordan Bluse found out the hard way. He was riding his snowmobile with a group of friends in the Salt River Mountain Range outside of Afton, Wyoming, when a large cornice sheared off below him. He and his snowmobile fell through the cornice and tumbled down 1,200 vertical feet over multiple cliff bands. His location in an opposite drainage presented a difficult challenge for his friends still above and local search and rescue teams who would be called to respond. The ensuing rescue effort brought together both the Star Valley Search and Rescue Team based in Afton and Teton County Search and Rescue in Jackson. In this episode of The Fine Line, we'll hear from Jordan and his friend Tyler Wolfley, who watched it go down from above and put in the 911 call. Teton County Search and Rescue's Ian Johnston explains how a search and rescue assist plays out in this very remote corner of Wyoming, and we'll talk about how specific pieces of safety gear helped this group have a positive outcome and how different SAR teams can work together to save lives. I'm Matt Hansen, and you're listening to The Fine Line from Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to eliminate fatalities and serious injuries in our surrounding public lands. We'll begin with Jordan, Tyler, and Ian right after this. The Fine Line is presented by Roadhouse Brewing Company, supporting backcountry safety and the Jackson Hole community since 2012. Located in the heart of the Tetons, Roadhouse Brewing Company embodies the authentic spirit of the West, where your word is your honor, quality is your craft, and adventure is rooted in your soul. Roadhouse is a certified B Corp, best for the world company, helping to preserve this beautiful land we call home. The Roadhouse Pub and Eatery is located on the square in downtown Jackson, and look for their beer and cans at a store near you. Visit roadhousebrewery.com. The Fine Line is also presented by Steo. At home in the Tetons, Steo lives and loves the mountain life. Time spent outside on trails, in rivers, and on summits inspires everything they create. That's why Steo is committed to a higher standard of sustainability, using responsible materials like Blue Sign approved textiles, organic cotton, RDS certified down, and recycled fabrics whenever possible. In their 11th year, Steo supports causes that protect our most treasured places and encourages diversity of access. Most recently, Steo has become a climate neutral certified company. Let the outside in at steo.com. I grew up in Wisconsin, trail riding. I uh, used to race snowcross back there, did a lot of that. Then uh, about 16 years ago, I moved up, moved out west here and been riding snowmobiles in the mountains ever since. So we go riding almost every single weekend, one to two days a weekend, so all winter long. 
Jordan Blues. I'm a heavy equipment diesel mechanic. I uh, lived in Star Valley for the last seven years. During the summer, always hunting, hiking, horseback riding, and winter snowmobiling every weekend. Got a wife and a daughter. I like riding a lot of trees, you know, so that's kind of where I focus on. And then the shoots, we love the shoots. I guess pretty much anywhere you can get yourself into trouble, <laughs> you know, that's where we ride. Tyler Wolfley, born and raised in Star Valley, lived there my whole life, so 30 years. I'm a welder, own my own business. In the summertime, mainly just like backcountry hikes, horse rides, you know, work a lot. And then wintertime, we're just snowmobiling down hunting in the fall. Tyler, just out of curiosity, what year did you graduate from Star Valley High School? Uh, 12. 12, nice. Yep. I was uh, 09. So 09? We, we would overlap a little bit. Okay. Nice. Up here in Jackson. Oh, okay. So. Oh, cool. It's a bit of a rivalry, isn't it? Star Valley, Jackson? <laughs> oh, huge. Star Valley usually wins, though. <laughs> Football, at least. <laughs> <laughs> I was a golfer. So. Golfer? Yeah. Nice. yeah. Do you play football? No, I didn't. Yeah, I just, didn't. Uh, they wouldn't give me enough time to go hunting. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, I got caught every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My name is Ian Johnston. Um, I've lived in Jackson Hole um, since 1994. Grew up here in the Valley. Currently a CPA doing tax returns and bunch of other stuff for work uh, and I've been a volunteer with Teton County Search and Rescue for two years and I love getting out in the mountains to uh, backcountry ski uh, hike in the summer and then uh, do some whitewater kayaking in the summers as well. Where we live I mean we're two miles as the crow flies and then we start riding so we're, we're right there right next to Salt River Range and then we like to go over on the west side too which is pretty fun over there like the Caribou Range so we go over there quite a bit. We were debating on going on the Idaho side that day, but then we ended up going up Dry Creek Canyon, which is just right outside of Afton, Wyoming. So we went up there riding. Snow was great. I mean, there's two or three feet of powder, untouched snow everywhere. So perfect day for riding, bright blue sky. There was four or five of us. It was mainly bluebird yeah. in the morning, but it had a little bit of cloud cover. That was coming, I think it was coming from the south. I think it was about 24 degrees, summers in that ballpark. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Going up Dry Creek that morning, Jordan, Tyler, and the other riders were equipped with avalanche transceivers, shovels, probes, avalanche airbags, two-way radios, and Garmin inReach satellite devices. They've learned along the way to make sure they are prepared every time they go out in the mountains. I guess probably the best way to learn how to be prepared is either one, getting in a situation that you wasn't prepared enough for, or your mentors, you know, teaching you like, hey, you know, we need to be doing this, or you need this, or when I first started out riding, I was on a Polaris 440, and I mean, we didn't have heavy bags, we didn't have, I mean, we had a big scoop shovel that we'd strap on the back of the tunnel. Nowadays, it's, the sleds are so impressive, they get you into, in a lot of bad places, so you have to have all the gear necessary, for sure. I mean, there's only a couple items on that you ride with that's for yourself. Other than that, all the other gears for your buddies, you know, it's to save them. Anything to add to that, Jordan? Uh, yeah, the uh, Star Valley Search and Rescue, they, they put on a avalanche training course every every year, too, and I've taken my wife and daughter to that. So they, they're teaching you how to use your beacons, how to use your probe, how to shovel properly in a situation on where somebody might be and 
and uh, just stuff you need to have to be prepared, as in have you know fire starter with you, and and we we always carry uh, in reaches for to get a call out every time we're up in the mountain. So just having having all that stuff definitely save, save anybody's life that you can come across. So I've always had a radio. It's just when you're riding with people, um, especially tree riding, somebody gets stuck, you can't see because you're not in the wide open. You can't see where they're at. So you communicate over the radio where you're at or if you need help or if, if your buddy's able to get unstuck by himself. If you're running low on gas and everybody needs to communicate, you know, and start heading back out. But we always have radios. Uh, the BCA 2.0 radios, and I was running the uh, BCA Float 25 airbag. Motoring up Dry Creek, the group gained elevation quickly because it's such a short canyon. If you look on a topo map, the apex of Dry Creek is formed by a very steep ridgeline that goes almost vertically north and south for more than a mile. The opposite side of the ridgeline is a Swift Creek drainage. In the winter, Swift Creek is pretty much no man's land, as it's surrounded by avalanche paths and very difficult to access. Now on that ridge, it's, so you got, you got timberline that goes up, I can't remember exact elevation, I mean, let's just say, you know, up to like 8,500, and then from there, there's a little bit of the ridge that has very minimum trees. And then on the backside of it, so down into the Swift Creek drainage, is just cliffs just the whole way across it from Swift Creek Lake all the way to the head of Swift Creek is just all cliff. And so that's that mile long ridge that we're talking about. Uh, but I mean, to get up to there, it's just a steep pole. You know, we've rode in there numerous times, you know, a lot of, uh, I mean, it's good tree riding down in the lower basins where we come up through there. Yeah. I would say, uh, the objective was to ride in dry Creek, not fall into Swift Creek that day. <laughs> so I had no intentions on riding in Swift Creek that day. It, I just ended up in there. We were playing up and down the hill on the Dry Creek side, and I made a pull all the way up to the top. And when I got up to the top, um, I seen there was, I was at the top, and there was a cornice. But you can't tell how big of a cornice it is, obviously, because you're on top of it. So there's a small pine tree right in front of me. So I figured out the pine tree's on ground, so I'm going to go just around it and turn and go back down the hill. There was still 30-plus feet of snow in front of me to the end of that cornice. So I, it's hard to gauge how big a cornice actually is. Um, so I turned on the outside of that tree towards the end of the cornice, and right as I did that to turn and go back downhill, it just all sheared off right below me and as it sheared off i seen it break in front of me i tried jumping from the snowmobile to get back on top but i just went straight down hit not sure what because by then i'm covered in snow got the wind knocked out of me and as i'm falling and tumbling off this cliff falling down in a swift creek um i just was telling myself i gotta pull my avalanche airbag so i just kept reaching with my right arm pulling and pulling and didn't know if I was actually grabbing it, the handle or not, but it was deployed. So I successfully did pull it, but I, I couldn't tell in my own head that I successfully did it because of the noise falling through the avalanche. You, you can't hear what's going on. My helmet was ripped off and my gloves were ripped off. And by the time I settled at the bottom, it was literally just my face sticking out and my 
hands were right at snow level, right at, right above the snow, but the whole rest of my body was buried. Yeah, I would, I mean, guessing, I would be guessing eight seconds by the time I went down what they figured, 1,200 feet. I mean, that's how quick it is, and you have, there's nothing you can do, you can't spin your body around, you don't know which way's up. It, it's just like you're in a tidal wave, and you, you don't know which way you're going. The only thing that was going through my mind is I hope this heavy bag is going to work and get my head above, because I couldn't see anything, because my face is full of snow. I didn't know if I'm six feet under snow, or if I'm just floating on top. I wasn't worried about the snowmobile, because I knew that dropped before me, but... I didn't, and, and I also didn't know the train I was falling into because that cornice was overhanging. I couldn't actually see. I didn't know where I was going down to. But if I was going through a bunch of trees, am I going to hit trees? Or I had no clue what I was falling into. So the last time I seen Jordan was because we was playing on the hill, and I remember coming down off of the hill, and I didn't quite go as far up as Jordan did. And we was all headed down towards the meadow. We just regrouping down there. And I remember I had a glimpse of my eye seeing Jordan go back up. And then, so we're kind of down at the bottom reconvening, you know, the other guys and myself. And I remember specifically, we get on the radio, you know, because, I mean, it was probably, I mean, we, we couldn't hear the sled. We couldn't, you know, nothing. It's like, okay, did he get stuck or does he need help getting unstuck? So we radioed nothing. And then it was maybe 30 seconds after that, uh, my good buddy Cody Wright, he asked me, he's like, does Jordan know about that cornice, how big it is up on top of that? And I was like, uh, it just heart sank. I was like, I don't, I don't think so. And so right then and there, you know, Cody Wright, Casey Morley, and myself, we fired up the sleds and, and took off. And we followed his track right to the top, and Cody Wright was the first one to the edge. And you can see where Jordan's track went, and then there's no more track. So we got the sleds parked just below it, got rope tied to our bumpers, and then we started walking out to the edge of the cornice and couldn't see anything. Couldn't see Jordan, couldn't see the sled. We just seen just a big pile of snow that slid down. At this time, I'm looking down there and I'm like, there's no way he went through all that. You know, because there was, you know, a whole bunch of them short jack blinds, probably a big pile of them, two sets of cliffs, and then what we call a whole bunch of moose food that was down there. And, I mean, we couldn't see nothing. But then, kind of as we're looking at that, Cody Wright, he was the one that actually got first radio communication with Jordan. As soon as he got up there, he heard Jordan on the radio. And all I can remember Jordan saying was like, I'm, I'm alive and I'm not buried. Oh, yeah, I, I remember 100% all of it. I, I didn't get knocked out, nothing. So, yep, um, the first thing I did is I kind of got my hands broke free and dug down to my radio, which luckily stayed right on my uh, cross strap on my backpack where it's supposed to be. Stayed right there. I was able to push the button, contact them, and we all just stayed in communication after that. But we couldn't see him, you know. But So I'm still thinking, like, okay, he's alive, but he's the snow is over top of him. You know, that's all I thought. I'm like, he is buried, you know, because he didn't, he didn't know exactly where he was. He, he didn't, you know, because he – off that fall, he was, I mean, I'm sure he was mind-boggled, I guess. Uh, so as we're looking down off of it and we start assessing the situation, uh, we could vaguely start, 
you know, seeing a little orange down there. And it, what we thought was his jacket, but it actually turned out to be his Avi pack because they're bright orange. And we stayed communication with him from then on and then immediately got the inreaches out and we sent the SOS button and I was calling. I was talking to Jordan the whole time on the radio and I kept telling him, like, save your energy, don't don't talk a lot. You know, and I kept telling him I'd check in every five minutes and, you know, update him on what's going on. But it was actually pretty incredible. I mean, there's nothing between the gear that we had and, and just sheer just somebody looking out for him. The rest of that cornice, there was probably like a four-inch fracture, you know, at least 35, 40 yards to the north and to the south of what should have broke off and slid, and it didn't. So it was, uh, it was pretty crazy on how it all panned out. But, yeah, I mean, we just stayed in communication with him and called the appropriate authorities. <laughs> And at that point, did you have cell service or did yeah. you use a, okay, you did. So well, you really we, get a call out. Yep. So we hit the SOS on both Casey Morley's and on mine. I can't remember if Cody Wright had his signaling out or not, but I had one bar of service, but I kept dropping calls. Gotcha. Yeah. So I couldn't call 911. I just, uh, well, I called 911, dropped, got him back, and then got in t- contact with uh, Star Valley Search and Rescue and, and I remember specifically mentioning them, like, listen, I'm, there's no point in sending anybody up here via snowmobile. I'm like, we need a bird. You yeah. got to get a bird coming right now. Because, you know, cause I, all I was thinking about was Jordan freezing. I mean, we could have got to him, but it would have taken a few more hours. There wasn't a safe way down from where we were at. You know, I considered it numerous times, just jumping off. And I was like, you know what, if my legs break, I can crawl to him. I can pull him out we can get over to the tree line we can make fire whatever you know but there's just we didn't have enough rope to you know descend off of it to where i could or any of us could be in a safe situation and who knows at that point we could have kicked off more snow buried him completely right so it was it was it was nerve-wracking being up there just talking to him on the radio and not being able to do anything i was telling myself in my head i need i need to keep calm i know we got help coming. I was able to get my arms broke free from the snow. I just kept digging and digging um, for the next two and a half, three hours with my bare hands in the, in the snow. I dug myself all the way down to my hips. So I had my whole upper body unburied. I tried getting my backpack off because I was trying to get myself broke free from the snow because I was thinking if I can get out of the snow, well, it's only... 40 yards over to these trees, I'm going to make a fire and get warm. But I knew there was something wrong in my chest or my ribs from the up fall. I ended up breaking 10 ribs. So I wasn't able, I didn't have the strength or the power to bust myself out. I think I would have been able to if I wasn't injured. So the, I just kept uh, digging as much snow as I could off me trying to get out because not knowing how long before somebody's able to get to me. So um, I'd stop about every two minutes from digging snow with my bare hands, put them in my mouth, try to keep my hands warm, get my breathing under control, try to stay as calm, calm as possible. About the last half an hour of sitting there and waiting, I was starting to get cold. I was starting to go into shock at that time. So my whole body started shaking and there wasn't much else I could do after that. It's just crazy, you know, just thinking about just as radio. I mean, these BCAs, they're just a, you know, their spin dial because they got like, uh, I can't remember, I think it's A, B, C, D, E, so four or five preset 
that you can preset channels on, right? I mean, you're thinking rolling off of a 1,400 foot and all the way down this. I'm like, what are, what are the odds that it stayed on that channel with everybody else? Totally. You know? Cornice failure, cliff, oh. avalanche, trees. Burial. You know, if that would have, I mean, if, if for one, we didn't have radio communication, we would have thought he was buried. You know, so at that point in time, it would have been a retrieval. That, I mean, having the communication was the only reason why we'd end up not going off that. We got a hold of everybody and told them, like, this is what we need. At that point in time, they're like, okay, we'll call you back in five minutes. We'll let you know when the bird's in the air or if we got a bird coming. It's like, okay. So then we started walking down this ridge to look down off this other chute to see if it was feasible to get snowmobiles. And it just, it wasn't. It was even worse. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm like, you know, me, Cody, and Casey were all sitting there. I'm like, well, one can stay here, you know, keep tabs on Jordan. Two of us, we can go up. So to the south, probably about another, it would have taken us, it's hard to say with snow conditions, but there was a spot that we could have dropped off of what we call balls. And so we considered that, but if, if you've never been on balls, it's like a big open face at the top of this same ridge that's, it slides every time you're on it. If this, but you know, so we was thinking about like, okay, the snow conditions, we, we know what they are. It's hundred percent. It's going to slide. Has it slid? Is it worth going that distance to see it hasn't slid and taking the risk of burying one, two more. And then it would be coming through once. We, okay. So that's the first obstacle you get down off balls, you know, and then you got to come back through the basin heading North again. And all these basins are just sketchy. If the snow conditions are not right, you know, it's all just, I mean, you're rattling your snowmobile through these basins. It's just waiting to trigger something off, you know. So once you got through all that, then, okay, then it's a hop, skip, and a jump down to where Jordan was. We thought about it, and we're like, well, that's easily over an hour, two hour that we got to do that. Like, let's wait, see if they got a bird coming. If they got a bird coming, then we'll wait. And then once we found out the bird was coming, like, okay, let's stay here. Let's keep ourselves calm before we do something stupid. You know, let's talk to Jordan, keep him somewhat coherent with us and make sure everything's good there. And then we was making the game plan like, okay, the bird's coming great, but is it going to be able to land where he was at? I mean, you've seen that, you know, over there. So we, I mean, it wasn't a for sure deal either, you know? So then we started thinking, okay, if the bird can't get there, then that's the way we're going. This was a uh, weekend day. Um, my weekend activities going out in backcountry skiing usually in Grand Teton National Park. And so earlier that day, I was out with another search and rescue volunteer, Brooke Yeomans, and then my really good friend, Eric Baylog. And we went out for uh, some powder skiing up in Grand Teton National Park. I'd just gotten home, gotten out of the shower, and sat down to start doing some tax returns since it's busy season for accountants. And uh, <laughs> I think it was about 3.30 in the afternoon. And um, when there's a rescue, uh, we all have a app on our phone that basically gives us, you know, kind of notification that there's a rescue going on and then we can choose to select one if we can go, two if we can't. So this call came in, you know, for an injured snowmobiler in Lincoln County, you know, hit one if you can go. So I hit one and uh, started making my way for, for the hangar. And can you explain how it works when Teton County Search and Rescue is called by another SAR team from a neighboring county. Can you describe that process a little bit? Sure. Yeah, so just to give a little bit of background about uh, Search and Rescue in Wyoming, it is 
basically done on a county by county basis. And so those geographical boundaries determine who's going to come get you in the case that you get hurt. And so we all try to help each other out because we all have different equipment, different specialties, things like that. We're a pretty busy SAR team up here in Teton County. And so we're pretty lucky to have a contract helicopter out here for eight months out of the year when a lot of counties in Wyoming don't, especially in the winter. There's some that do have helicopters in the summer, but not in the winter. Yeah, basically what happens is um, Lincoln County Search and Rescue started to call around to neighboring basically air resources to see if anything was available. And so we've got a few options in the area. Air Idaho, which is a medical ship out of Driggs, Idaho. Sublet County also has a helicopter, but only in the summer. And so uh, I think they called us about 3.30 in the afternoon just to see if our helicopter was available. So basically the way that comes in is they'll call our dispatch center in Jackson, um, who will route that request to the Search and Rescue Board of Advisors. And they'll convene on a conference call, you know, kind of evaluate the request, the distance needed to travel, you know, the avalanche conditions down there, and then um, kind of our resources that are available, and then they'll make that decision if we can go help. That all kind of happens behind the scenes before I get the notification, but um, they decided to convene the team and, and try to work this problem. So we're a team of all volunteers, and so when the pager goes off, we kind of see who's available and who shows up. And I think we only had about three or four of us show up kind of right away for this one. And our helicopter cannot fly at night. And so this mission was actually a little bit, or time was of the essence in this mission to, to be able to get out the door pretty quick. We had a pretty long flight to get down um, to the Salt River Range. And darkness at that time was about 630. And so, you know, from the time the pager went off to the time we needed to be back the hangar was about three hours. So I showed up, a couple other volunteers did as well. We always just make a quick plan, um, assign teams of who's gonna be flying in the helicopter, who might be going as a backup team on the ground. We decided that it would be Dr. A.J. Wheeler, Lexi McPhee, myself, and Casey Bess would fly down with our pilot, Steve Wilson. So once that's decided, we have um, a set of kind of safety procedures that we do on every mission we make sure that we have the necessary equipment on our person. And so that includes our 24-hour pack, um, skis and skins, if we need to get out of the backcountry uh, in the case the helicopter can't come back for us. And then we also wear flight kits on our person just in case the helicopter crashes and we can't get to our gear in the basket. And we have survival gear on our person in that case as well. And so uh, this one was pretty rushed, trying to get out the door. Uh, we all got our gear ready. We fill out kind of a last minute checklist we call it GAR or green, amber, red, where we evaluate kind of what this mission entails, how we feel about the location, the conditions, uh, the team members that are going to be going out there, and uh, it's kind of our way to rate the risk in the mission. And so before we go out the door, we all have a conversation about those factors, and then uh, we get a verbal yes from everyone to uh, be able to fly and get out the door. So we ran through those procedures pretty quickly. How long of a flight is it down to the Salt River Range from Jackson? Good question. I didn't know this till we got in the air, but uh, it was about 24 minutes to get down there one way, which is pretty quick, a lot quicker than driving, Yeah, uh, which, which is nice. For sure. <laughs> um, so uh, usually what happens, and this is the, the case with this mission as well, when we are taken off to fly down there, we'll usually talk in the helicopter on the way down, make a plan, kind of come up with some different um, scenarios that we might have to 
face and how we'd respond to those, you know, things like where are we going to be able to land, what specialized gear, like short haul, long line gear would we need to insert a rescuer if need be, you know, what we're going to do for our medical plan, you know, in case Jordan has some internal injuries or you know, some pretty bad injuries. And so, uh, yeah, it can be a little bit tense on the way down for sure. You know, you don't really know what you're, what you're flying into, but, uh, but yeah, it was a beautiful flight. I remember the clouds were just starting to come in a little bit from the mm-hmm. west, but the weather was still pretty good. And we flew down basically the entirety of the spine of the Salt River Range to get down there, which was just beautiful. Yeah, we have a little kind of timer in the helicopter that shows us our time to destination. And so with about two minutes left to get to our waypoint on the map, uh, we all kind of started looking out the window to kind of try to identify where, you know, Jordan, you were and, you know, where the group was. And so we start flying into this really kind of steep-walled canyon that kind of ended in the distance to the south. And we were like, okay, this looks like it It might be Swift Creek. And my first impression when we flew in there was, oh, man, there are a lot of avalanche paths in here. (laughs) (laughs) It's exactly like you were saying. You know, it's basically from three sides, you've got wide-open 40-degree slopes. I think the avalanche danger that day was was pretty high. We'd just gotten a bunch of new snow. And so as we were able to, you know, do a few circles and we were able to kind of see you, Jordan, from the air, the next conversation becomes, okay, how are we going to be able to insert rescuers safely? Yeah, that was kind of the next step was was making that plan. Yeah, because that you're still probably, if you're landing down below near Jordan, you're probably looking at this giant cornice that's above you all along that ridgeline, correct? That's exactly right. And so, you know, the first thing we, we knew was there'd been an avalanche triggered by this cornice, you know, up above Jordan. And so first thing we did was look up there. There's still a bunch of cornice up there. Um, there's still a bunch of hanging snowfields, you know, up by that cliff that could still come down. We call those, you know, hang fire things that could still come down an avalanche. And so it was definitely a, a scene that, yeah, we definitely had to consider all those hazards and um, kind of make a plan for that. So I say, hey, Blue, so you hear that bird coming? And he gets back on there. But you can hear the, it actually, I mean, it could almost bring tears in your eyes hearing the, the joy in his, you know, like he got a, a breath of fresh air. Right, and I told him, like, Bert's coming. He gets on, he's like, yeah, I hear it. You know, and that was just, I mean, it just brought everybody's spirits up for sure. Yeah, and then I seen it circling a couple times. It's like, well, son of a gun, they're not going to be able to land. (laughs) (laughs) But they're just checking out the train to make sure it's safe for them, which I completely understand. So basically after we're able to get a visual on your location, usually that's, can be a pretty tough thing to do from the air, but we were able to see the orange airbag, kind of like you were you were saying as well. That was a pretty good identifier where you were at. We always do a few circles where our pilot's kind of assessing what the train looks like down below, possible landing zones, possible egress, things like that. And at this point, we're having a conversation as to, you know, of our four rescuers in the helicopter, who are we going to insert into the field, and um, what's going to be our plan basically after that. And so... We did a couple circles. We decided that we were comfortable doing what's called a toe-in landing. And so Jordan was on a a slope that wasn't flat, kind of where the avalanche deposited him. And so our pilot, Steve Wilson, very skilled, is able to basically put the toe of the helicopter in the front of the skids in the snow while still maintaining power and lift. And we're able to slide the door open and unload all the gear while he's basically just uh, touching the front of the helicopter to the snow, which is pretty convenient for getting into some places that aren't flat, which there are very few in the mountains. So the four of us, we decided to drop off Casey Bess and myself to 
run kind of the medical scene down on the snow. We're both EMTs. Everyone's probably asking why we left Dr. A.J. Wheeler in the helicopter. He was the only spotter on the mission in case we needed to do a short-haul rescue to get you out of there. And so that role is pretty important. He would remain in the helicopter in the case that we needed to attach the rope to the belly and then lift you out underneath the, the helicopter there. So him and um, Lexi McPhee stayed with the helicopter to basically get it ready to receive Jordan when we got him ready. How do you approach someone who's been in the snow for a couple hours and as a, as a first responder? Great question. So when we landed, it's a pretty frenetic scene. You're trying to unload all the medical gear. We have all these bags, our skis, our 24-hour packs. We have to have that all with us because we don't know if the helicopter will be able to come back. We knew we had a long way out Swift Creek if, uh, <laughs> if they weren't able to come back. <laughs> and so finally the helicopter takes off kind of left with this quiet scene. And Jordan, I remember we were walking over to you. I couldn't see if you were moving yet. And your head was kind of underneath this little kind of indentation in the snow, so we couldn't really see you very well. And I kind of had this thought like, uh-oh, you know, I hope this guy's still moving around and doing okay. And yeah, I remember walking up and, you know, you were just laying there kind of like, hey, can you think you guys can dig me out? <laughs> <laughs> we said, sure thing. Yep. <laughs> so I mean, as a rescuer, your heart just uh, leaps when you see someone who's, um, who's still conscious and looks like they're doing pretty well. And we call it the general impression when you come on scene and, you know, you get the first look at somebody and, you know, that, that tells you a lot about how the next hour is going to go. And Jordan was looking like he was, he was hanging in there. As the helicopter was coming down, I could tell snow was starting to whip around. So I took my hands, covered my face, just to try to keep as much snow out of there as possible. So I wasn't looking around while they were unloading or anything. I couldn't move to turn and see him anyways. But So after the helicopter took off, they came walking up, asked how I was feeling, if anything hurt, and I said I got pain in my chest, but my legs and everything else feels good, and uh, my hands are freezing because I've been digging snow for three hours with no gloves. So I believe it was you, I, I don't know who, but one of you gave me some gloves to put on my hands, and that was... Greatly appreciated. Totally. We, we could tell those were yeah. pretty cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I still don't have the full feeling in my fingertips. They're still numb. It's slowly coming back. But And Tyler, you're, are you are you up on the ridge watching this go down? Yeah. They kind of told me to step away, but I couldn't. I had, <laughs> I had to stay out there so I could keep, you know, keep an eye on my bro down there, you know. But as soon as I see them get out on the ground, it was, I remember turning back and talking to, the other guys, I'm like, they're on the ground. He's he's going to be all right. So, I mean, huge relief. I forgot to mention is we have a BCA radio, the same one that a lot of folks oh. carry. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times we've been able to get information of what channel you guys are on on the ground. Mm-hmm. Then we've been able mm-hmm. to actually talk to you from the air. Yeah, and as you were saying, I think we were like, can you just step back yeah. a little bit from that cornice? Because uh, we <laughs> yeah. want to make sure this thing doesn't come right, down. Right. And uh, you guys did a great job at that. Yeah. So. But yeah, that is a great tool that folks can be aware of is, uh, you know, if you have a BCA radio and you're in an accident, you can call 911, let them know what channel you're on, and uh, um, that's something we can use. My body, I could tell, was in pain in my chest, but as soon as they got the snow off of me and they they rolled me on my left side, I, it, I mean, I didn't know if my back was broke. I mean, it it was excruciating pain. And they're like, are you okay? I said, I said just do it. Get it over with. So they rolled me on the side. They put the beanbag vacuum deal under me, laid me back down. I asked if it was all right if I could have my knees up because it felt better. 
I don't know if it was my pushing on my stomach or what, but it, so they conformed to me with my knees being able to be propped up. And then they put me on a snowboard, I believe. I forgot about this yeah. part. Yep. So they're like, all right, we're going to put you on this snowboard and get you down to a little flatter spot for when the helicopter lands. And either my back, my ribs hurt that much, or else they put the spot where your feet go right in the middle of my back because <laughs> it, it, it hurt for that, that 10, I don't know if it was 10, 12 yards, they slid me down the hill. It it was hurting. Yep. Yeah, basically we, uh, we had to get Jordan from uh, kind of this hole where we dug him out down about 30 feet the spot that was going to be a little bit better and when you're inserted into the the scene with only two rescuers it's, it's almost impossible to lift mm-hmm. somebody with just two people so casey and i were sitting there we're like you got any ideas and he goes i think i got one <laughs> <laughs> so casey best says well, i got my my snowboard here why don't we just lift yeah. him on this and, and slide him down i said all right <laughs> it actually worked pretty well yep. so oh yeah 100 percent. oh i mean it just a tremendous feeling of gratefulness and everybody being able to perform the tasks that they've trained for. And I mean, just complete great gratitude for all of it. So to everybody that helped, I know it was painful getting moved from the helicopter and into the ambulance and stuff. But I mean, it, they're doing everything the best they can. And they, I, I believe everything was done, done right. Perfect. The helicopter flew Jordan to a landing zone in the parking lot of Osmond Elementary School in Afton. It was just a two- to three-minute flight where they met a waiting ambulance, which took Jordan to the local hospital. Ian Johnson and Casey Bess were still out in the backcountry, hoping that the helicopter would return. Yeah, so basically what happens is when we configure the ship to uh, be able to take a patient laying down, we lose three seats. And so that means that there wasn't room for Casey Bess and I uh, when we when we loaded Jordan into the helicopter. And so we basically see a takeoff, and we're like, awesome. You know, we got the patient in the helicopter, and now it goes dead quiet again. And we're like, okay, hope they can come back for us because we are really out here, and it's starting to get dark. So this kind of comes back to what we were talking about with the, the lateness of day. I think it was about, you know, 5.45 p.m. at this point. We had to be back at the hangar by 6.40 p.m. or so per the, the regulations to not be able to fly at night. And so Casey, Bess, and I kind of, you know, have a little bit of time to talk and, you know, kind of coming up with a you know quick backup plan if we if we need to get out of there. But most of what we did was just get to kind of take in the scene. And, um, yeah, Jordan, your snowmobile that had fallen off with you was buried about 15 feet below where you were buried. And so we kind of just started to, to check that out, and it was unbelievable. It was absolutely mangled. The two front skis were snapped off, uh, handlebars were snapped off. Like, you know, these are metal pieces of the sled that were just absolutely decimated. You know, the muffler was 40 feet away, you know, kind of down the slope. I don't know if it's called a muffler in, in snowmobiling, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, b- big chunk of metal, you know. And, and we, could, we just kept, you know, talking about how there was this piece of machinery made of metal that was absolutely mangled, and there was this guy that, looked like he was going to be all right and so yeah somebody was looking out for you i think yep. it was it was it was pretty amazing but yeah luckily after about 20 minutes we hear the helicopter coming back in you know a little bit of urgency in in our pilot steve wilson's voice you know with <laughs> we, we got to get going so he landed did a tow in landing again we loaded up all our equipment started heading back for jackson we tried to take the the same flight path we took on the way down but we actually had weather moving in and so we had to um 
take a new route kind of up the Star Valley, Valley proper. And uh, we made it back with 10 minutes to spare before um, before we had to be back and uh, with um, almost no fuel. So it was, a, it was a pretty, pretty amazing timing. So in reflecting on this incident, Tyler and Jordan point to the gear they carried and the ability to use it that helped save Jordan's life. Like I stated earlier, the gear, there's only a couple items on your gear list that's for you. Everything else is for your partner, for who you're riding with. Definitely want to ride with people that, you know, are going to be able to save your life, you know, that have a good sense of training, you know, or even just, I mean, anything to help out really, you know, but for sure, got to have an Abbey pack, especially in the country we ride in, you got to have it. Like we stated earlier, fire starter, you know, rope, BCA radio, or radio of any brand, really. I mean, but we carry BCAs. I am a firm believer in having an inreach, you know, and I used to, after this experience, one thing that I learned a lot was we used to have our inreach just in our backpack, right? But after now, it's it's just like, you know, anytime you get your you get your gear on, you get your backpack on, you, you, you unzip and you pull out your handle for if you got to deploy your bag, right? So now what I do now is I turn the inreach on. So it's already transmitting. It's ready. That's one thing that we didn't do. You know, I mean, that, you know, seconds, seconds matter. So in that situation might've been quicker, you know, maybe, it, you know, that could escalate it to five minutes sooner that, you know, that the bird got there. So I would definitely recommend turning that on before you go out and having it ready. Have you been back to that spot since? Yeah. So I went in exactly a week later with another bird. We flew in, we landed. And then we probed and probed and probed. Uh, but the remaining cornice and the rest of the snow off of that whole mountain come down. We anticipate it buried it another 15 feet. Because uh, the only thing I could find that we probed is actually Pilot was the one that actually struck. And he hit the can off the snowmobile. And part of the bulkhead was with that can. So I don't know if it was debris that was left up on top of the hill that got pushed down. But we was able to find that. And then we found a bogey wheel off of the skid and that's all we could find. I mean, and we, I don't know how many, how many probes we did, but we, a significant amount all the way up it. You know, I mean, we had really good indications of where the sled should have been. It might've got pushed down even more with the avalanche, the remaining part of it. So we were unsuccessful on getting the sled out. So now it's a, it's pack horse. You know, I'm just really glad that in the state of Wyoming, we have such good relationships with other counties and other search and rescue teams. And Lincoln County does an amazing job, the train they've got to cover and all the different recreation that happens down there. You know, they've mm -hmm. got Class 3 Whitewater. They've got Salt River Range. They've got, you know, ATVN and fishing and all this stuff, you know, hunters. And so um, to be able to work with them, you know, is really awesome. Um, they've got a great team down there. And yeah, that's what I love about being in Wyoming is we all help each other out and Kind of the same thing happens in the search and rescue community. Yeah, I think the second thing is just, um, yeah, the power of avalanche airbags. You know, I've, I'm a backcountry skier, so I'm aware of kind of their utility and, and, and things like that. But uh, but I firmly believe that that's what saved Jordan. You know, as he was tumbling down, you know, getting caught in this really big avalanche, you know, after the cornice and him hit the slope. The fact that he was on the surface, I think, was totally due to the fact that he was able to deploy his airbag. And so I definitely gained a newfound respect for, for the technology that's out there. Kind of like Tyler mm -hmm. was saying, the gear, it really does save lives. So, yeah. um, I would just say 
trust who you're riding with. I mean, I, I knew the guys I was riding with. I know they, they know the areas. They are prepared for instances and, you know, what, whatever can come up. And I feel I'm the same way. So we, we all have similar riding skills. So we're all, we can get to each other if we need to. And I knew that canyon where I was, I, it wasn't worth them. I said on the radio, I said, do not come off that. That's not worth you getting hurt on top of it because it's it, it was just too sketchy of an area. And I am just super grateful of the search and rescue team. I mean, Star Valley and Teton, I mean, I can't thank you guys enough. I mean, I, I truly don't believe I, I would have made it, made it tonight because shock was starting to set in that last half an hour and freezing cold, so... I, I don't know if I would, I would have made it till the next morning. Thank you for listening to The Fine Line. I'm Matt Hansen. To learn more about the Star Valley Search and Rescue Team, you can go to lincolncountywy.gov. Our editing and sound are by Melinda Binks. Our theme song is by Ann and Pete Sibley, with additional music provided by Ben Winship. The interviews were recorded in the studios of KHOL 89.1 FM in downtown Jackson. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to eliminate fatalities and serious injuries in the Jackson Hole backcountry. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.